Now listening to Lost Cast, the Lost Decade Games podcast. Hey everybody, thanks for being here. This is Lost Cast 135 and I'm Matt Hackett. I'm Jeff Blair. Last week, what we talk about, Jeff? You remember? Uh, I think something we talked about <laughs> talked a lot about uh the music composer behind final fantasy oh, yeah. stuff nobu umatsu i actually got some really good uh, feedback about that lots of great tweets really appreciate that you guys and yeah. uh, uh lots of good game dev general game dev takeaways you know like you look at music closely and it's not just the music stuff that you learn about you know you can learn how to take those lessons and apply them to the rest of the overwhelming things you have to do to get your game completed you know mm-hmm so today we're going to talk about uh, there's your stream yesterday. Uh, I've got a survey. I want uh, I want like five minutes of your time, dear listener. Um, we're going to tell you the date for the Kickstarter coming up. Uh, I've got some notes here that I'll read. That's kind of funny, and I'll ask you about that. Hopefully, you'll be able to make sense out of it. Uh, I've got one more composer thing, although this will probably continue <laughs> throughout you know future episodes. But I've got another composer thing I want to talk about, and then uh, I'm going to have my art tip this week. You've got a Unity tip. That's exciting. By popular demand. Yeah. It's like, uh, you know, the arts and the and the code side are like, they're balanced, you know? That's right. Where we have art tips, we want Unity tips. Where we have code streams, we want art streams and all that. The all yin that and the yang of game development. That's right. And where they come together, <laughs> that's uh, that's the game, you know? Yeah. Makes a video game. So let's get into it. Um, yesterday, actually, first, off, first things first, take our survey. We have a LDG video content survey. So as you know, we've been streaming once a week, which we'll talk to Jeff about here in a bit. But uh, I haven't really been doing too much stuff. I kind of want more information. You know, I want to know if I should double down on Twitch or YouTube or what kind of content you guys like. And so that's what the survey is all about. And uh, this time, it's like a legit survey. I actually got the help of my professional user researcher uh, wife who uh, took a look at it and gave it the full treatment. Whereas last time it was like, you know, kind of amateur hour survey. <laughs> right. When we had Lovecast and uh, we talked about, you know, that wasn't, that survey was more about like, what do you want to hear for Lostcast? What kind of content do you like? You know, all that good stuff. And this one's more like, hey, do you use YouTube? What kind of videos do you like? What kind of content would you enjoy? Like, when are you available to watch a Twitch stream? You know, that's important because we want to maximize when the most people can be there. You know, and like what we've seen on the forum is that uh, the times that people are available varies widely, you know? Yeah. Oh, actually, <laughs> I forgot to tell you this before, but uh, I think, uh, I don't remember there being a question on there about how long uh, how you'd want to attend a Twitch stream, you know? Oh, because, I see. You know, some people might want to just be there for an hour or, you know, there's people like Lethal Frag that stream for like eight hours <laughs> at a time. You know? Eight hours, Jeff. That's what your Mondays need to be. <laughs> all stream all the time. You wake up, you eat breakfast, and you stream, and you don't quit. Yeah. <laughs> until Actually, my streams have been kind of going longer. Uh, yeah, I noticed that. They're almost hitting two hours at this point. I think it's pretty good for you to target one hour, and then just, you know, stuff happens. Like, you're very flexible, but, you know, one hour is a pretty good place to begin. That's kind of how the podcast goes, actually. You know, like, we usually target one hour. We almost never go under, and we almost always go a little bit over, at least. Yeah, although I always kind of wonder, because uh after editing and stuff what how long it takes me well how long the podcast ends up being oh well you can editing. just go look yeah <laughs> that, t- that would require me to visit our <laughs> website though <laughs> why do you hate us so much jeff 
<laughs> have us. a little have a little love for us no. uh so yeah i'm going to be pimping out that survey for probably the whole month of august and so it'll be open for this whole month and uh you should totally take it because it'll really help us out and it'll help kind of inform the video content that we'll be making across twitch and youtube and who knows maybe other stuff as well so we want your input and i'll put a link in the show notes and I, yeah, okay, I was going to say, I assume there'll be a link somewhere. There'll be a link. I'll be tweeting it. I'm going to put it on the forum. And for the whole month, I'm going to put this out there. And then I'll close it down like around September. And then we'll compile the data and then I'll talk about it. Yay. I like analytic cast. I know. Data is fun. Plus, it's like you, the listener. What do you care about? You know, what do you want to hear? This is your opportunity. Uh, and of course, there'll be like a free form kind of comment section, you know, and that's always fun. So we'll probably read some of that stuff if there's uh, anything but pure hate <laughs> in the comments. <laughs> <laughs> So. Let us know if you want to see more of my cats on the video stream. Oh, I'm sure that you'll get lots of... Yeah. We want a, yeah. a, a Koopa cast and a cat cast, cat cam, Koopa cam, all these things. Yeah. More animals. Anyways, yeah. Take the survey. Let us know. Yeah, totally. So, do you want to announce the dates? Uh, yeah, let's do it. It's exciting times. A Wizard's Lizard 2 Kickstarter. It's coming September 1st. September 1st? September 1st, man, we've pushed that back. How many times have we pushed that back now? <laughs> Several. Are you a little embarrassed? Uh, no, because, you know... Stuff takes time. <laughs> well, being a software engineer for, <laughs> I don't even know how many years now, at least I a decade I think it might have been a half. decade. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Well, I'm almost 35, and I started professionally when I was 20, so... Right. About 15 years. Anyways, the point is, is that I am all but immune to the embarrassment <laughs> and shame of pushing back release dates, because... You know, it's like a callus. Okay. It happens so often that you just become, uh, you know, numb. Yeah. <laughs> to the pain. I've still got that thing where, like, I, I've, I'm still very optimistic. I'm, I'm naive. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I'm like, we, we need a month. And, like, okay, remember earlier in the year? Well, we should launch our first game in just three months. <laughs> I always think it's going to take three months. And, like, how many games out of even the contracts we've had? Like, none of them take three months. They all take, like, let's start at four and go from there, you know? Uh, it's interesting that you used to talk about three months because I was reading in a, a, an article today, actually, about Alpha Bear from Spry Fox. Oh, yeah. And they were talking about how they have basically two criteria for the games that they work on on mobile. And it either needs to be, one, something they can get done in three months, or right. two, uh, something that's going to be extremely viral. Mm, and that'd be hard to know, wouldn't it? Uh, I imagine that it would. Like, you might have all these viral green lights going off, and you're like, man, this is going to be the most viral game ever. Uh, like, that doesn't always <laughs> play well, right? Yes. So, yeah, September 1st, we're going to launch the A Wizard's Lizard Kickstarter. Or The Wizard's Lizard 2. That's I'm right. sorry. Kickstarter. I keep saying, I keep forgetting the 2. There's just so many words and syllables. Yes. It's kind AWL2. Of yeah, even, there it is. Even the acronym is long. AWL2. That's a W lot of kills everything. <laughs> it does. It destroys any attempt at uh, acronyms. It's horrible. Damn. World Wide Damn. Web, how could you? That's right. WWW. No. <laughs> it's so painful. <laughs> Uh, uh interesting anyway yeah uh so yeah um we actually had some people reaching out on twitter asking for more details about the game uh yeah. which will be forthcoming with the kickstarter um so you know you've probably gotten a taste of what we're working on but you haven't really had a high level view of awl2 and so that will be coming with the kickstarter Have yeah, all definitely. the gory details the nitty-gritty you know what I yeah. like about our dates that we finally, finally landed on? Because for a long time, we were looking at like mid-July. That would have lined up pretty well with 
last uh, or two years ago when we had our Kickstarter. That was actually June, I want to say, and we launched on Steam. And wait, I'm getting confused. Anyway, we launched on <laughs> Steam in July, so that would have been a pretty cool time to like, uh, or was it June? <laughs> it was June. <laughs> Man, let me check my calendar. Anyway, it would have been pretty cool, but uh, you know what? Just stuff takes longer. But what I do like about it is that it's going to be very simple. It's just all of September. September 1st to September 31st. There you go. That's our Well, something period. that we uh, figured out in the midst of planning this was that uh, you can make a Kickstarter campaign for any amount of days. Well, isn't it zero to 60? Well, yeah, but I mean, one to within six, that range, one. it could be like seven. 42.3. Eight, 18. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you can do whatever you want, but Kickstarter basically recommends 30. They're like, 30 is the, you know, that's the target. true, but we also read some articles by some kind of veteran Kickstarting people, and they were talking about how if you're an old hat at Kickstarter, which we are not, but if you were... Young hat. (laughs) Tiger hat. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we are tiger hat at Kickstarter. Um, But if you were an old hat at it... um, it makes sense to do shorter campaigns, like maybe two weeks or two and a half weeks or something. Yeah, because you basically, you know exactly what you're doing. You can have this, like, you know, really narrow target and you can just nail it. And, you know, your own network, you might fully saturate in two weeks because you're so good and you know how to do that. And Kickstarter's own discovery channels. What I've heard, too, is that those discovery channels mostly pay off in the beginning and the end. So you've got this kind of, you know, the pit of despair in the middle. Where it's right. like, you might have a 60-day funding period. And like on the surface, I can see how some newbies might be like, don't you want basically the longest amount of time possible to fund? Because the more time you have, the more funding you'll get, right? It doesn't really work that way because, you know, you lose excitement. And here's the reason. Uh, I'll put a link to the Sto- Stonemaier Sto- Games uh, has all these really great articles. Like just, just an overwhelming amount of... Uh, Kickstarter best practices and lessons learned and that kind of stuff. And they had this kind of a nice post about like the psychological benefits of having your Kickstarter begin and end in the same month, you know, Mm. and it's very subtle, but like, let's say it's, uh, you know, let's say we did launch in August and it'd be like, we're August, you know, 10th through September 20th or who knows, something like that. Right. You might be like, you know, I don't get paid till next week and there's this game I wanted to buy or I want to eat food or whatever. <laughs> and then you're like, uh, I'll do it in August, you know, and it feels like a month away, which, you know, just as human beings, you're like, that's next month. I got forever between now and then. Yeah. And it like slips through the cracks and you forget about it, you know, but here it like, it kind of creates this emergency, you know, it's like, no, it's September. It's September now and <laughs> it's, it's ending emergency. September. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's just funny to think about an emergency as related to like a video game Kickstarter. <laughs> <laughs> it's an emergency to us. It's very important to us. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> uh, we hope that you will join us on September 1st. Yes. Help us get the word out and uh, and back us. Yeah, say, save that money. Put, it, put a little bit of money aside for us <laughs> in a tin can or something. <laughs> we need it. Everybody yeah. needs a lost cast jar. Oh, a lost cast jar. I like that. You build it up. Hopefully, it's like it's been building up for the last year, maybe two, and it's like, well, guys, I bought your game. You know, I'd like to support you in other ways, but uh, (laughs) you have no, you have no net open. There's no way for me to give you money. You know, what we really need actually is like Lost Cast Bingo. (laughs) So every time Matt mentions Spelunky, every time Matt doesn't doesn't know an idiom. Yep. Yep. Oh, that's pretty good. I like that. Every time we repeat ourselves. Oh, yep. Those are all pretty good, actually. I'm liking this. Every, uh, what yeah. about every time we put on a tiger hat? Yep, every time we put on a tiger this hat. This is pretty good. I, I was actually wanting for a while to have a podcast just about like the culture, culture cast, 
you know, just about the various things. Like, I know for one that there's a lot of, um, like, like this is probably a podcast that's much more jargon heavy than we're aware of. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that it is. You know, like, like Tiger Hat is very cryptic, you know, that's very much just us. You know, people, only people who listen to Lost Cast or have had that explained to them are going to understand that one. But there's lots of other, you know, development terms and game design terms and just, like, game, you know, gaming industry itself has a lot of just jargon, which uh, so is inaccessible terrific. and, like, you know, not very welcoming all the time. Yes. Anywho, um, yes. this was kind of fun. This was a note from, uh, I've got this setup now I've talked about. Like, right now I'm standing and I've actually got two computers and recording on my Mac, but over here I've got my Windows machine with my notes and stuff. And it was like, it was very awkward typing last week. So here, here's my exact notes. Approach to behavior, implementing 90 versus tuentance. <laughs> so I think what I was trying to say is approach to behavior, implementing unity versus tweens it's does that great. ring a bell it does because this is something <laughs> that i told you that i wanted to talk about but in usual matt fashion you have no idea what i was saying and right. so you just wrote some words yes <laughs> <laughs> i i just listened to the syllables that you're saying i'm the, the ideas behind them i'm like who cares okay no this is good i think this was like at the end of last week and you were like oh there's something else i wanted to talk about but we're already over an hour and you know continuity's good right so it's like hopefully people have been looking forward to hearing you yeah. talk about nitty versus twietance yeah well here we go i'm excited about it so the basic gist of this is that uh i've been working on enemy behavior in a wizard's lizard 2 nice and unity has like a really robust physics system yeah uh built in and so one thing that i was kind of struggling with um was implementing enemy movement using uh the rigid bodies which is like the physics 2d stuff or like just kind of having more concise control over it using tweening or you know really anything it doesn't necessarily have to be a tween but right i I was using tweens because i like the way that it looks you know with like uh the nice ease in ease out and those kinds of things tweens are juicy tweens are juicy you get a lot of bang for your buck but like that kind of movement isn't i find easy to do in you know with rigid bodies because rigid bodies uh, you know, by necessity are sort of inexact in that sense. Right. Like you can set an exact velocity uh, on an object and it will go where it wants to go and it will collide with what it wants to collide with. And you can control all that stuff. You know, you can say this kind of a thing collides with other kinds of things, but not this other thing. You know, A yeah. collides with B, but not C. Um, and like so collision can, groups and whatnot? Yeah, like collision groups actually. And nice. So Unity actually has this nice 2D matrix uh, where you can set what collides with what. And so, you know, they have... Uh, it kind of looks like one of those logic puzzles that I used to do in, you know, middle school or something, right? Where you have, like, rows and columns, and you kind of find the intersection, and you say, you know, uh, the dog in the blue house or whatever. Was that, like, a, a programming... Part of a programming class? What was that? Um, no, when did you it have wasn't logic a- puzzles? uh it was just this school that i went to and i guess that's what they did huh interesting i don't Um, remember having done any of that outside of the few programming classes i took no it wasn't programming related but it was definitely you know probably something that helped with programming later on because you know they were very much like they would give you these clues like there would be like uh i don't know like 10 clues or five clues or something right and they would help you decide which of the things you know basically they would give you these clues and then you'd have to figure out 
which things matched which things or whatever. Yeah, that reminds Anyways. me of these flowcharts we used to take. I actually saw those when I was digging through my notes back when I went to Illinois last time, and I saw these like actual flowcharts we had to draw you know, with like little boxes and arrows and stuff. And these days I was looking at it and I'm like, it'd be faster just to write the code for this. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Anywho. Uh, but anyways, back to the Unity thing. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of just, you know, trying to figure out what the best way to approach these enemy behaviors is. And it could end up being a uh, mix of both, right? You might have mm. some enemies that are rigid body driven. Uh, and then some entities that are tween driven or whatever. And so, uh, like the, um, the knives I was working on, on stream before last, uh, remember like they kind of have this movement where they move one tile at a time. They kind of have this nice tween and they have this up and down hovering. Yeah. They'll kind of float. And then like when they're on the downswing, they will move a tile. Yeah. So whoop, whoop, kind (laughs) of like that. So I think it's just kind of, you know, I tend to kind of want things to be homogenous sometimes. Yeah. Like I want to have all my entities, you know, inherit from this one base or something, or, you know, they all need to be physically based. Um, and so that's kind of a struggle to figure out what the best approach is there. But I think it kind of comes down to uh, what's best in that particular scenario. It's all about um, balance. It is. But at the same time, I don't want to repeat some of the mistakes I think we made in the Wizards Lizard 1 uh, which was that there was a little bit of inconsistency between certain interactions, like, oh, the zombies would uh, be affected by the webs, which would slow them down, but they didn't collide with the spikes at all. Yeah. And so, you know, it was kind of a weird, like, why? <laughs> and uh, Why a lot must of it they learn down. your strange rules? Your <laughs> right. contradictions, sir. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of one thing that I'm concerned about with, like, the tween-based entities is that if there are, you know, if we do use the physics-based interactions that Unity provides, like, uh, for certain entities, is it going to be weird that some other entities don't necessarily respond to that? Uh, one of the things I was thinking, though, was that giving some of those entities a rigid body and just keeping it off, you know, like, you can enable and disable components in Unity uh, dynamically. And so I could have some kind of scenario where, like, it moves on a tween, and then when it collides with something, it turns on the rigid body and gets affected by the collision somehow. Hmm. Um, Interesting. I don't know if that would actually work, but that's kind of <laughs> like one thing that my brain wants to try uh, to see if you know that would actually work. Uh, but again, it could just end up being more complicated than it's worth. Yeah. The I know what you mean about the consolidation thing, right? Like you, in an ideal world, you could do everything the same way and it's infinitely extensible and it's, it's wonderful and all that. But like, sometimes you have to have this kind of big hack job where it's like a combination of one approach with a little bit of like another approach sprinkled in there. Right. Yeah. You need to kind of, I don't know, be flexible, I guess. Yeah. Um, because, you know, we don't even know all of the types of enemy behaviors that we're going to want to implement at this point. Uh, and so, I don't know. We'll have to see how that works out. Although, uh, I will say that I've kind of been leaning kind of away from the Unity physics-based stuff for a lot of interactions, just because I think that there is a game concept that you could make uh, solely around that, like just leveraging all those physics-based things. Oh, sure, yeah. Um, Obviously, but uh, I don't know that that's going to be this game. 
I think oh. that it's it's a little strange because, like, let's say you're making a side-scrolling platformer, Unity physics are a great choice for that, you know? And I bet that most people making 3D games, at least, you know, a 3D simulation of the real world or, you know, a pseudo-version of it, uh, it makes a lot of sense to leverage all of the, the Unity physics that you can. But in a three-quarter overhead game, like, we're making stuff like gravity doesn't really exist at all. And so that makes things like even friction might not really have as much of a place in our game uh, as it would in like a you know a side-scrolling platformer where there is gravity you know or a 3d simulation where there is this you know heavy emphasis on on gravity uh one thing you were looking at recently is um you kind of put the the physics system onto things that you could push like let's say there's a little puzzle where you want to push this statue onto a you know a pressure plate and when the pressure plate is active, uh, these doors will open for you or whatnot. Mm-hmm. And so you had the Unity physics on the statue, but you were saying that you were think like kind of leaning away from that because it's um, it was kind of floaty and you know you couldn't you you feel like you didn't have as much control, I guess is what it was. Uh, well, actually, it kind of came down to uh, some of these entities that were actually smaller, not the statues, but like uh, like we had a jar. And I kind of wanted you to be able to pick up the jar in your mouth and spit it out. And I was also having it so the player could push the jar around the level. You right. put it over um, buttons or whatever. Um, but in order to get a good feeling of push, um, you need to mess with the mass and the friction of the jar. Right. Right. And so if, you know, the, you don't want the jar to feel too floaty, it has to have like a little bit of a higher mass and a little bit more friction in order to make it feel like this is something you're pushing along the ground with a lot of resistance, perhaps. Right. Um, but then I found that when I put it uh, in the mouth and I spat it out, the way that the spitting works is that there's a constant impulse that's applied to things that get spit out of the mouth, which I think is the right approach, right? You, know, you, you could say that um, the spit has a constant force to it. Whenever you spit, if you spit your hardest, it has you know some amount of force. So um, when when you say constant impulse, you mean it has a static velocity? Is that what um, you mean? Well, I mean that it applies a certain amount of force when it comes out of the mouth to the object that's coming out of the mouth. And then, like, let's say that like a jar that you spat out of your mouth, right? Does that right. thing not have any friction? Well, it does have friction because we just talked about how when you move it along the ground, it has these mass and friction properties on the physics settings right that cause it to move more slowly but the flip side of that is that when you spit it out of your mouth it still feels like it's moving out across the ground so i guess there's uh, another spelunky <laughs> example here which would be the default behavior let's say you pick up a rock and you throw it right like it is immediately affected by friction basically maybe it's the wind or the air but basically just some resistance like it it goes up just a little bit and it'll come down gravity has an effect on it if it hits the ground it'll like drag and slide right Right. But then there's this item, the, the pitcher's mitt. And when you have that, it's more like this static velocity, where it's like the moment you throw it, it just starts traveling, let's say, left. And it goes in a straight line. It's not affected by wind that you can tell. It's, it's, not, effect, it's not being pulled down at all. It never goes down, like pulled by gravity. It just goes in a static line all the way across until it hits something, and then there you go. So it's right. like a different type of velocity. Uh, right. I, I mean, I guess what they do in Spelunky probably is they just say gravity does not affect... Gravity and friction do not affect this entity until it collides with the wall. Right. Or whatever, right? Because if you spit a rock like that in Splunky, it'll travel and hit a wall, and then after it hits the wall, it'll bounce off and then be affected by gravity the way that it always would have. Right. right. At least the way I remember it. Yeah. 
I guess that's something we could do in this scenario too. Um, I, I think it kind of comes down to the three force overhead uh, perspective being a little weird because you have this entity that's moving through space and you don't really have this good concept of height, right? But you need to kind of simulate it, right? Because you want to say, well, when it's moving, when it's getting pushed around by the player on the ground, you want it to feel like it's on the ground sliding. Right. But when it's moving after being spat, you want it to feel like it's flying through the air above the ground, not being affected by the gravity of the ground. Yeah. The other thing is about, like, mass, you know, and I think that, you know, for uh, getting the feeling of pushing it correctly, the mass needs to be higher. But the problem with that is that then um, the impulse applied to an object with a higher mass means that it, like, travels more slowly or, you know, it drops off more quickly. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, Like, it doesn't go as fast because it's heavier, essentially. So so, which approach are you currently looking at for, like, pushed and or spat objects? Well, I'm kind of thinking that it needs to just be simplified because uh, the physics simulation in a top-down overhead, you know, it basically just has these weird edge cases because, like, what we just talked about. And so I think that it, it needs to be, you know, a complicated edge case where when it's being spat out of the mouth, it's treated differently. You know, there's some kind of flag or basically an enabling disabling of components that says, you know, don't, uh, <laughs> don't have gravity <laughs> and don't have this, or we don't have gravity at all, but you know, don't have friction perhaps. Right. Uh, we could probably do something similar where, you know, when you spit out a jar, the mass gets reduced to zero uh, or one or whatever the default would be so that everything you spit out of your mouth kind of flies in the same, uh, like, it feels the same, right? No matter what you spit out of your mouth, it kind of has the same trajectory. Right. But I think this isn't a game where we would want to have the difference between heavier or lighter objects. Yeah, uh, it's not really a physics-based game. We don't want that stuff to matter, necessarily. It's more like we want things to be, you know, your inputs anyway. We want them to be predictable and reliable. Yeah. And you've, you've kind of already got that behavior going. There's these, uh, these I don't know what to call them. I'll call them a uh, oven turret? Stove turret? What'd you call them in the code? Uh, I just call them ovens. Ovens. Okay, so there's these... They're basically turrets, though. These little ovens that sit in the kitchen and they shoot out fireballs. And the way you've got those set up now, they kind of have that thing where they're not really affected by... You know, like, there's no drag. There's no friction. They just kind of travel, right? The fireballs? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly. So I think that the way that uh, I'm leaning towards right now is that stuff is not so physically affected. So you're you leaning know, away from the physics and more towards like just some either tweens or just like static velocities. Yeah, I mean that's kind of how Wizards Lizard One worked too. It was just yeah. you know things had a static velocity and they didn't really decay over time um, and stuff like that. So nice. Yeah. Anyways, I think it's really interesting because there are a number of ways to do it, you know, um, and it's really kind of. Uh, fun to actually use the Unity built-in stuff because there's so much there. Um, I think that it's really easy to get going with the physics-based stuff, and you can kind of create some really interesting interactions just right off the bat, uh, just leveraging what Unity gives you. But the flip side of that coin, though, is that uh, it may give you more than you're ready for, right, in the game design sense, right? There's uh, a lot of stuff that could happen that you're not really expecting, and like I was just talking about with, like, the spitting versus the pushing uh, you have these edge cases where, you know, they start to kind of conflict in ways that you don't want them to. 
It could lead to some emergent gameplay, though, which is one of the things we really want to get into this game. But uh, I, let me ask you this. We're not looking so much at the physics for AWL2, but what if we were making a side-scoring platformer? Do you think you'd use it more then? I think so, yeah, because, again, uh, those edge cases, they don't matter as much in that kind of a perspective because, you know, when something is airborne, it doesn't have friction along the ground anyway. Yeah. Like, you know, you can give it friction uh, against other materials and... Um, and that would be fine, right? And then the gravity kind of does the work of, you know, keeping it <laughs> airborne or not. Right. And so I think that, you know, uh, it's just a little bit simpler of a proposition. Yeah. Uh, because you have this kind of idea of height uh, that, that you don't really have in a top-down overhead game. I mean, yeah. you can fake it, but, you know, it kind of feels weird. There's so many things about the top-down, three-quarter, overhead, whatever, uh, that's just harder much harder. I think that it would, be, it would be easier if we were making like a game that was actually a 3D game with a locked perspective, you know? Yeah. Um, because even though we're using Unity, which is a 3D engine, everything is still completely 2D. Um, but another option would be kind of a hybrid approach where the game itself is actually three-dimensional, and so the objects are three-dimensional. The sprites might be rendered in two dimensions, but, you know, they would have like, you know, you could throw a jar and it would be airborne, and the Unity physics would take care of that, and the gravity would make it slowly sink towards the ground. And then when it hits the ground, um, you know the Unix, the Unix, <laughs> the Unity physics system, <laughs> you know, could be able to respond to that appropriately, uh, and it would just be a lot easier because it wouldn't really be faking it at that point, right? You'd have yeah. a true 3D simulation where something was airborne or not airborne, sliding along the ground or whatever. What was that game we were looking at a screenshot? One of the developers was uh, posting kind of behind the scenes Unity screenshots, and it was that kind of thing where it's it's like technically the dungeon in this you know kind of three quarter overhead perspective was three D material, right? But the I believe the characters, like the actors, the props, all that stuff were billboards, so two D right. sprites. Legend uh, of Dungeoneering, Dungeon, Dungeon, Dungeon. <laughs> all well, these games of- have dungeon in the name. Legend of Dungeon isn't the one that you're thinking of, but that one does use uh, like something 3D. similar. It's kind of a similar setup, yeah, uh, where it does use I think 3D background. Dungeoneering geometry. was that it? No, I think you're thinking of Guild of Dungeoneering, but Guild that's a completely Dungeon. different game. Okay, I don't remember what this one that was then. I don't remember either. If we find it, we'll put it in the show notes. But yeah, yeah the basic idea was is that you have this 3D level with you know textured 3D objects making up the walls. And then you have uh, basically a camera that's kind of like at the same angle as you would see uh, in another game, like a top-down game. Yeah. Uh, And then the sprites were actually just kind of these 2D billboards that, interestingly, they were actually scaled. They were stretched because of the angle. Like, if if you just had the billboards sitting the way that they were meant to be, just kind of a scale of one, when you rotate the camera up, to kind of get that sort of bird's eye diagonal view down into the level, um, they got really squished because of the perspective. And so what they had to do was actually the sprites were then scaled up so they were stretched taller so that they looked appropriate when you were looking down into the level. And it kind of reminded me a little bit of uh, that new 3D Legend of Zelda game. Oh, Link Between Worlds. A Link Between Worlds where like they have, there's that screenshot I think (laughs) that... uh, we posted at some point or you know maybe we can find it again but essentially what happens is that they have this 3d world and the camera is kind of up 
above looking down diagonally into the world. Um, but all of the character models are kind of like leaning facing towards up the camera, right? Yeah. So you kind of get that Legend of Zelda perspective, but it's just completely wrong if you look at it from the side or something. The illusion is highly effective. It is. It's really effective, yeah. And with that kind of locked camera position in the game, it works beautifully. I played the whole game. I never noticed a thing in the world. But then you move the camera ever so slightly, you know, and all of a sudden you're like, whoa, everything looks weird. Like it's super slanted. It reminds me of... um, this will date me. The uh, was it in the nineties? Those V eight commercials, like tomato juice. People were walking <laughs> super sideways, like at a forty five degree angle, and it's like you look like you need some V eight. Wow! Chug yeah. It, and now you're walking vertically. That uh, does date you and me by comparison. Hey, I know you knew what, what I was about. talking about, and yeah, our exactly. listeners, it dates you too. If you know what I'm talking about, if not, I'm sure it's on YouTube or something. <laughs> right. But anywho, yeah, yeah, man, perspective is hard in games, especially uh, 2D games, because I feel like, you know, we've talked before about how 3D is not just like, oh, it's just one more dimension, can't be that much more difficult, right? It is. It's like exponentially harder the step from 2D to 3D, at least at least to us and a lot of other 2D developers. But uh, you do gain a lot with the 3D, because it's just like, look, it's in the world, it's 3D, it's like, shut up, <laughs> it's done, <laughs> it's rendered, right? Like, it'll make sense. You don't have this, you don't have to like you know all this weirdness with the 2d 3d confusion it's uh it complicates things it makes it makes it harder to move forward sometimes yeah but like even in the legend of zelda example like the character sprites aren't just billboard sprites they're actually 3d models right and so even in even in a completely true 3d environment you want to manipulate things so they look better because if you want to i guess you can like it's always the option to you right because we've seen plenty of you know, overhead games in pure 3D where they don't really do that, and it looks fine. It's just that you you don't get as much of the character's face. You don't get as much of the character's personality, right? Right. I mean, yeah, you're right. It's a choice uh, stylistically, but I personally have never been a fan of games where it's more true overhead. Yeah. Uh, because you just... The characters look boring. I was watching uh, Games Done Quick last week. I should have talked about it. I forgot to. Uh, I think it's Ikaruga. Is this shooter... Um, looks really cool. It's like one of these bullet hell type things. And uh, they had this boss that had like multiple skull heads. And it's an overhead game. So it's like, you know, top down. You're just looking at the very tops of the ships and all the ships you're blowing up and stuff. It's like a right. sci-fi shooter. And this boss was introduced with the camera kind of like way down, almost behind the like avatar ships, like player ships. And the skulls looked so cool. And I was like, whoa, this boss is awesome. And then the camera goes whoop, right back up to where it would need to be for the game to resume. Right, and those skulls lost uh, lost those those skulls lost all personality. They just looked like orbs, basically, which like is like white okay, orbs or something. Yeah, which is fine, but they they lost the face, you know, and and the really cool character that they had, and uh, it seems like a shame. And sometimes, you know, yeah, that's you know, know just the stylistic choices that that you make in one yeah uh, one game or another. Anyways, but yeah, it's uh it's interesting to think about all the different ways that you can do that. Um, I always kind of feel like uh, things would be easier in like completely side-scrolling land, just because they would be. Uh, there's, <laughs> you know, there's not that uh, like you can lose the depth dimension and, and you know not suffer for it as much as when you uh, lose the height, right? Yeah, it would uh, make my job worlds easier. It would, yeah. I mean, your job too, you know. Both Everyone's jobs. jobs. Yes. That's probably why, why I mean, 
<laughs> why you see so many indie games there's this guy's claim platformers yeah we've talked about that it's like yeah, it's yeah. easier across the board and then also a lot of the platforms uh like the tools that devs use they're like you could make a side screen platformer it's pretty easy we're ready well, to I mean, go for for example one of the things we've been working on recently in awl2 is the tongue and yeah. a lot of work i basically spent my entire dev stream yesterday <laughs> working on the fact that the tongue needs to uh, be anchored at different places on the character's face depending on which direction he's facing yeah and you had to draw all these different you know frames from every all eight directions of him with you know his mouth open right like he's gonna stick his tongue out and then i had to spend all this time uh figuring out how to make that work how to layer it correctly and how to get the tongue to anchor correctly at the specific points on the sprite where we wanted it to happen yeah and like you know in yoshi's island or mario world they got to do Yoshi's tongue and they're like, here's a sprite. Let's put the tongue in Yoshi's mouth and then we'll flip it when you're facing left. <laughs> Ship it. <laughs> Ship it. And we're like days of just, oh, it looks weird because when he's facing forward, the tongue has to overlap like his, the whole front part of his body. But then when he's facing up, like you're looking at Raga's back, then the tongue needs to be underneath his head and come out from the top of his head. And it looks weird and it's hard. Yeah, well, luckily the up-facing directions are actually pretty easy because then yeah, the tongue overlap. Yeah, the tongue is completely below the character and uh, it looks fine. The really tricky parts are where he's facing the camera because then it can't be. Uh, well, it has to be above him in the sense that it needs to be like above his jaw and above his body and his feet. Yeah, but it needs to be below, you know, his upper face. Just uh, way more to consider, basically. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. Uh, the upshot, the good news of that scenario is I think <laughs> that uh, we have a pretty good setup now where that works pretty well. Nice. Uh, I'm looking forward to drawing um, the rest of those tongue frames. The sooner yeah. I do it, the sooner I can do it again and make it better. <laughs> I think my biggest feedback there would be uh, more exaggeration. Like, Okay. Uh, I think it's kind of like acting, you know, yeah. when... Uh, you know, actors are always told to like over exaggerate emotions and motions, right? Yeah. Um, and I think the same is true for these kinds of things, right? Because uh, it's easy to miss the subtle differences between the sprites, but if there's a big transition uh, between like the motion lines of the sprite, um, and then like you know a heavy exaggeration on the mouth being like wide open, like wider than you would expect, right? I think would look better than a more realistic amount of openness okay <laughs> if that makes sense yeah no it does yeah i will uh i will exaggerate that then yeah do some gestures find the motion stuff like that yep so uh we got some really great comments about uh the, the appreciation of the composer talks and i think that that's probably because uh you know we talk about all things games and especially game developments on this podcast and uh, music is one that's it's always there you know the the podcast starts with some music and always ends with some really good music uh but it's not something you or i do at least anymore you know and uh so it doesn't get talked about as much but it is a pretty important part of making games you know you gotta have sound and gotta have but you really want to have sound and you gotta have stuff like graphics and obviously code and all that but um yeah i got some we got some great feedback about that so i'm gonna do another one real quick uh one of my favorite games of all time is 
<laughs> this is kind of a mouthful. This actually makes me feel better about our games and our mouthfuls. <laughs> but <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons Warriors of the Eternal Sun. Ah, uh, yes. Man, I gotta catch my breath after that thing. <laughs> uh, this game I remember seeing for the first time back when GameStop was Babbage's. This also mm. dates me. Uh, I must be like 90 years old at this point. Um, but uh, it was one of these weird role-playing games for Genesis that was like... Remember most games were like 40 or 50 bucks, and then once in a while it was like, Fantasy Star 4, 100 bucks. And you're like, whoa! Really? Yeah, like some games, especially on Genesis, were more expensive, and that was one of them. So when I first saw it, and it's like, it's got really cool box art that's like classic Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, what's that artist's name? I, see, I actually have the box over here. It's really good, and the back looks awesome, and it's one of these games. I, I, I don't know why, um, but I really like games with multiple modes of play. You know, like Blaster Master I talk a lot about. It's a side-scrolling mm-hmm. platformer, but then there's also these kind of Zelda-style overhead dungeons you can go into. And, like, I don't want to make games like... Uh, I do. Um, let's be honest, I do. But <laughs> I was I, gonna I, say. <laughs> I really do, but not now, because it's, like, we can barely handle making one of those things, right? Like, the way to do it would probably be we launch Wizard Lizard 2, right? And then maybe our next game is a side-scrolling platformer, and we get that out the door. And then later, we're like, okay, let's try to marry these two together, and it'll take, like, 15 years, and we'll never get this game done. Anyway, anyway, um, <laughs> I really wanted the game badly, and I eventually got it, and I just played it to death, and it was um, one of these really fun games where, like, I remember when I was a kid, I used to beat a role-playing game and then start a new game right away and play it again. You know what I mean? Like, just how much time did I have when I was a kid, you know? Apparently way too much. Way too much. And that's one of the things I did with um, Warriors of the Eternal Sun. And what was really fun about it, one of the things that kept me coming t- into it, back, like, back to it, was that it was full of secrets for one. Lots of hidden things like, ooh, an X plus three is over here, that kind of stuff. And uh, it also had lots of exploits, which I think is really fun. Um, anyway, I, w- I think it was Games Done Quick and watching that and uh, seeing people obsess over their favorite games from their childhood and whatnot got me kind of uh, just reading about it and stuff. And uh, I always liked the music a lot. And um, when I was uh, playing the game with some of my friends, uh, we had one of these things where like a couple of years ago, friends came over and just all week we were just playing old games on emulator and stuff. And I was playing that one and they were like, man, you didn't tell us the music for this was so good. Because like a lot of my, uh, you know, grade school and um, older friends, uh, they have the same appreciation for your game music that I do, you know? So we'll like share soundtracks. We'll be like, oh man, you probably haven't heard of this game. You should check out the soundtrack. Like to this day, we'll send each other messages about like, oh, there's this, you know, this gem of a game that somehow missed our radars when we were growing up. Hmm. Um, anyway, I was reading about the composer and I'm going to get his name wrong, but it is uh, Frank Klepacki. <laughs> Frank <laughs> Klepacki. Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes, but I thought there was uh, an interesting quote from him um, that I think can kind of ring true for um, a lot of uh, people who uh, would listen to this kind of podcast. And here it is. Uh, the, ironic, the ironic thing is that my original goal in life was to be in a famous band, tour the world, and sell millions of albums. Right? Doesn't that sound familiar? Mm. Like we all just have, like we see stars in the sky. We're like, oh, the sky's the limit. I'm going to be so successful. Um, although that didn't quite happen, I got something else just as gratifying. Instead of being in a famous band, I gained some fame in the industry as a game composer. Instead of touring the world, I received fan mail from around the world. Instead of selling millions of albums, my music is on millions of games, and I sell enough of my own albums that allows me to keep releasing them. So in a different way, I kind of got what I wanted after all, and I'm more happy with that. The most fulfilling part of it is that I feel I contributed to something that mattered in a significant number of people, and more importantly, I got to be part of projects that mattered to my life personally, like Star Wars. That's pretty cool. So it's like, you know, he could say, this, these are the things that I want out of life. I want to be, 
you know, I want to be in a famous band and I want to tour the world and sell lots of albums and blah, blah, blah. Right. And it's like, he kind of checked all those boxes, but never in a way he would have envisioned. And that's probably because, you know, born in like, uh, was it mid seventies or something was probably seeing like hair bands, eighties bands. And was like, yeah, that like, that's the formula I want to follow. That's my template, you know? But the reality being that, like, just given his place in the world, his skill set, just the random roll of the dice, like, who knows, right? For whatever reason, that wasn't in his future. It was more, like, geared towards games. I thought that was really interesting because it's like, you know, your goal might be one thing and you might get there, but your path, your path is what's going to be completely different than what you may have expected. Kind of speaks to, like, kind of rolling with uh, opportunity, right? Like, you can't so rigidly stick to what you think success is you kind of yeah. have to adapt to what success turns out to be perhaps yeah last week's talk with uh, nubuo imatsu had kind of the same thing you know he pictured himself making more uh, i think we called it conventional music you know where like yeah. i'd be in a band or i'd be part of a symphony or whatever like people make a living by touring the world and you know like games were such a like such fledgling back then like it was what, early 80s or something so it was like can you go be a game composer and it's like no <laughs> There are like five people in the world doing that right now. You can't do that. I have to say, though, uh, the way that his success worked out, um, Frank, yep. uh, sounds much better to me. I mean, <laughs> honestly, I can't think of, uh, I can't think that touring the world like that would actually end up being that much fun because, yeah, you might be going to all these different countries, but you're maybe only spending a night or two there and basically you're working really hard. You know, you're playing the same set of music night in, night out. Uh, in basically just different venues in different cities and you probably don't even have a lot of time to appreciate being in those different cities in the first place. Yeah, it could be. I think it depends a lot. You know, like my wife loves to travel, so she'd probably really dig a job. At least, like that's the thing too, is at least for a while, you know, like not all of us, you know, us, anyone who's going to have like a band or, you know, try to do music and tour the world or whatnot, they're probably not going to be Metallica, you know, or Rolling Stones. They're probably not going to tour forever. It's like most bands probably can carve out a living for three to maybe 10 years, you know, something like that. And I think for some people, that sounds great. It's like there's a slice of your life where you hit it really hard, toured the world, you sold a lot of music, and then you, you know, you burnt out or just music changed in a direction that didn't suit you or whatever. Uh, but yeah, I think for me personally, like what sounds really cool to me is, um, did you watch that video of, uh, the Incredipede developers, Northways? I may have mentioned this already. Probably. Is that the one, uh, where it was like a talk where they were talking about how they work from all these disparate locations all over the world? Yeah. They, they travel the world and like, they said that Incredipede was made in like six different countries or, or something like that. Yeah. And it sounds really expensive, and it probably is if you're traveling nonstop, but they were like, you know, we'll go and spend, you know, six months in Cambodia or something. And at that point, you could actually end up saving money. They said that, you know, the amount of money they spent on travel last year was less than some of their friends who live in San Francisco, and they spent on commuting. Right. right? Oh, like, as we it. know, that gets expensive, you know? So it's like, it's it's on a budget, you know? It's like, and I'm sure CreditPete has done pretty well, and they've got bright futures ahead of them. But the point is, you don't have to be rich to do that you know and that that sounds interesting to me like i would love to go and spend like three months or six months somewhere like that i've never been somewhere you know some very far away country that kind of thing but yeah i wouldn't want to be like okay here we go two days in seattle three days in san francisco four days in new york like one day in chicago like that that would wear me out i get sick of that real quick oh yeah same i kind of need to uh settle in a little bit 
Yeah. Actually, that trip to San Diego I took like a, like a month ago or something was great because um, we got to the hotel and we could just like unpack, you know? Right. I like that. You put your feet up and you're like, this is home for a little bit instead of, you know, having to hop around hotels or whatnot. It was interesting. Uh, Melissa and I went to Hawaii a number of years ago and we actually stayed in a little uh, hotel that had like a kitchenette and everything and like you know drawers and stuff and so we unpacked and like we were able to make meals in our hotel room sometimes and stuff like that i like that yeah it was really cool yeah and uh but then you know when we went to new zealand we were kind of all over the map and like we weren't in any one place for more than two or three days and so it was a much different experience yeah and i think there's places for both you know like um you know if it came to be where like let's say we needed to promote really hard for a game or something and so there was like a couple months period where it would make a lot of sense for like, you know, one or both of us to travel to various cons and give talks or just, you know, try to display the game and that kind of stuff. Like, I'd be down for that. I wouldn't yeah. want to do it my whole life. <laughs> but I'd do it for a while. Uh, the Northway thing, though, it sounds really interesting. I, I would love to try that. Um, I yeah. think that I would have to like, I don't think I'm so materialistic, but I would have to give up a lot of the stuff <laughs> that I have right now, which, you know, maybe it could be a good thing. Oh, man. Yeah, I remember this one time we moved, I think it was from Mountain View to somewhere, maybe it's North Hollywood. Anyway, uh, we moved to a much smaller apartment. It's one of these times in which we were kind of downsizing, you know, and uh, we had like 20 garbage bags full of like clothes and I couldn't even tell you what it was. Like some of it was trash, just straight up garbage. But like a lot of it was stuff like this is all things that work. Like, let's just give it to Goodwill or whatnot. But like it filled up like our, our kitchen, like seriously, our, our current kitchen where I, I cook like almost every single day. You could fill that whole full, that whole room full of just bags full of crap we didn't need. Right. You know, that's like embarrassing. Like what is all this junk? You don't like, we don't need so many things. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> materialism is kind of crazy. It's out of control. Yeah. Uh, anyways, traveling sounds really cool. Maybe we'll get there someday. Yeah. Hope so. Uh-huh, so but- you have a unity tip. I do tip of the unity to you that's right <laughs> <laughs> what is it uh, i'm dying this, here this is jeff's first <gasps> unity tip tip number zero because we're programmers yeah i needed it to uh, uh i need to add a tip zero to mine i kind of did yeah. that and amend them so my first tip is that you can set script component defaults by selecting the script in unity and modifying the values in the inspector and uh, this is pretty standard workflow for Unity. Um, when you select an entity, like a prefab, you can then modify the properties of it. You can add components to it and stuff like that. And Unity has these script components, which are just really custom components uh, that you write in code. And you can give them properties. Like, um, it doesn't really matter. They could be floats. They could be uh, Boolean. They could be other game objects. They could really be almost anything that you want them to be. Uh, but when you attach these script components to objects, you have to go and then fill in these properties for each object. However, what you can do is you can actually go into the script itself, select it in Unity, and you can set defaults for those public fields on your script component. And then mm. when you attach that component to a prefab later, uh, it will have some you know sane defaults, hopefully. I see. That makes yep. a little bit of sense to me. <laughs> yeah. And so, I understand I mean, some of that. It's probably something that would benefit from uh, a kind of like a visual indicator of how it works. Um, but it's it's very useful for uh, things that you would drag and drop 
into the Unity Inspector, like perhaps like audio files or other game objects, um, things like that. So, Could you do like a screenshot, like a single image screen cap and demonstrate what you're talking about, perhaps? I could, yeah. You should tweet it and I'll link to it in the show notes. Will do. It's kind of show funny, notes. actually, that uh, Unity does this thing, this hashtag Unity Tips, which comes on yeah. Tuesdays. Oh. Funnily enough. So this kind of worked How out How convenient. Well. Yeah, you've got to do that. I actually saw, I follow Unity and I've seen them tweet that stuff. It's, uh, mm. I'm like, what does that mean? What is that? What? What? <laughs> but cool. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for the tips. <laughs> a lot of it makes more sense, you know, if you have just a little bit of a familiarity with the IDE. Yeah. But if you don't, it just looks all foreign, right? Yeah. yeah. Nice. Anyways. So are you going to keep those going like one per week or what? Yeah, I will. Yeah. Cool. So you're ready for art tip n- number three? I'm ready. So let's uh, quick recap. <clears throat> there was tip number zero, draw every day. There's tip number one, uh, finding your starting point, or I like to call it learn to learn. Because let's be honest, art is hard. <laughs> Lots of things are hard and there's a lot to learn. So you just need to like, you know, corral that in. Like, what am I even going to be learning? How do I learn? Learn to learn. Uh, and then last week it was primitives, which is we are not drawing 2D shapes. We are drawing 3D shapes. Wonderful expressive like perspective things you know and the first step is drawing the second step is you're going to start thinking that way you know that's kind of harder uh tip number three here we go uh i call this one you're surrounded no no <laughs> like they're on all sides this one is like um saturate yourself and basically what i'm doing with my art tips is i'm kind of like i'm trying to remember how like late last year i started to approach all this stuff you know because i felt even though i had done art professionally whatever just as a just as an indie trying to get by, you know, like I'm starting to take it seriously and like ramp up my education and whatnot, you know? And this was a big part of it is I was like, you know, if I'm going to start doing this, I'm going to start following artists. And what I do is like for me to follow an artist, basically I got to have like this Venn diagram, right? I want as much overlap as possible. And in one circle, there would be, I like your art style. That's pretty important, you know? Yeah. And a lot of artists might have different art styles. They like, I draw comics sometimes. Sometimes I draw, you know, realistic paintings, who knows? But like, I need to like the style or I'm probably not that interested. Um, I, I gotta like the topics. You know, if someone's just painting flowers all day, like that's cool. And it might be very tactically impressive or something, but I like, I like characters. I like backgrounds. I like scenes. I like medieval fantasy. So I gotta like the topics they cover. Right. And then here's another big one for me. I like people who talk about the process. I don't really like the kind of mystique behind art. And uh, if I can find this, I'll put a link to it where it was like, uh demystifying concept art i want to say sounds right i'm gonna put a link in the show notes if i can find hopefully i can find that but basically it's like when you seemingly go from nothing to perfect drawing here you go yeah some people can do that but that doesn't help me you know and it's also not that interesting i want to know the ins and the outs of it so like that's basically for me like i like your style i like the topics that you cover like the subjects that you draw and then also you're kind of open about your process and that might be you know, talking about the pains you went through or just like live drawing or some people will make like a process gif. That's fun. Where it's like, here's the sketch. Here's my lines. Here's my coloring. Here's my shading. All that kind of stuff. I love that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. So that's that's part of it is like follow, follow lots of artists and uh, I will recommend um, some right now actually. So there is Matt Core, who I've mentioned before on Control Paint. Definitely follow him. There is Proko who does amazing drawings and paintings and they both these artists so far have lots of tutorials and stuff uh, there's also jake clark who is a comic artist with like 20 years of experience and uh, he does these really interesting videos where he will just like here's a 40 minute video of just me drawing on paper right and then he'll kind of overlay that with he'll just talk about like 
his process, his, um, you know, what he was thinking at the time, or sometimes it's even unrelated to a specific drawing. He'll kind of be like, okay, here, I'm going to draw a dragon. I'm going to start some simple shapes and, uh, you can just follow along as I'm going to talk about art school, like something kind of unrelated, but it's still kind of fun. They kind of go hand in hand together, you know? Um, and I like his style a lot. There's also, <laughs> forgive the, uh, the G rated podcast. Um, it's not terribly PG. It's like a PG 13 name. Scrotum nose. <laughs> it's quite a, <laughs> quite a visual there, isn't it? Um, yes. really good artist, self-taught, um, uh, is a, what is it? Um, storyboard artist for DreamWorks. Very cool. And, uh, I really like his style a lot. I like a lot of his topics cause a lot of it's like nerdy gaming stuff. And then is also pretty open, um, with his process. Uh, it does like live streams and stuff too. So, um, I follow all these people on Twitter so far. Um, and then last but not least, this is my favorite artist so far. Um, this is Paul Richards who... Paul did the Wield and Weld tutorial that I linked to last week, which is, to me, I think it is the best single piece of, like, tutorial or education on artwork I've, I've ever experienced. Wow. It's, uh, because it's, it's break things down so simply for you, you know, and explains things in simple ways, and, it, and like, it takes away the technical, like, get out your ruler and your stencil and the burr, like, no, just do it. Like, go for the feeling of perspective, you know, like, shoot from the hip. But it's like it also gives you these like Lego blocks, you know, these building blocks, you know, like start simply. You want to draw a person? That's hard. But if you start with this cube, you know, you start with a sphere, you start with an oval, you you can work up from there, you know. And uh, Paul actually has a Patreon, which I'll put a link to in the show notes. Um, I back him just for a couple bucks a month and I get like, it's great. It's just like kind of raw, just here's my sketches from this week or the last couple of days. What I really like is he does these creative trickeries he calls them kind of ways to either fool himself, get his brain to think in a different way or to like nudge himself out of a, uh, let's say writer's block, but like a drawing block, you know? Right. Um, all the, here's an example. Here's a quick one. Like I don't want to give away all of his great tricks or anything, but like, let's say you, you're having a hard time with like the way things overlap with perspective or just finding shapes. Like, let's say you just, you tend to always draw heads and you're like, ah, I'm sick of drawing heads. So you take two like poker cards or two magic cards or whatever, two, three by five note cards, right? And put them together and it'll form like a little L or it'll form like an H or whatever kind of shape you want to go for. And then just fill that with your drawing. It gives you a space to work with. It's the same thing as like limitations breed creativity, right? Mm. I really like that one. Yeah. I like that one a lot. Um, And then here's something else that uh, Paul does this sometimes too. Um, Like just uh, last month he posted, which was just like a brain dump of all his thoughts about like his process when drawing. There's actually no drawings on this post. And uh, again, I'm not going to give it all away. I'm just going to recommend it. But I want to talk a little bit about what he calls grist because, you know, I'm all about demystifying, you know, like, you know, really good artists, really good developers, whatever. They're not magicians, you know, they just work really hard and they've built up this really gigantic kind of like backlog of like, these are the things that I use that I've learned over the years that help me do better drawings or make better work, right? And so, uh, grist is my term for any abstract gobbledygook, which aids you in finding the right forms. I've heard some artists call these, quote, searching lines, but they could just as easily be visions seen in clouds or wood grain. Uh, A thing is sculpted into being by an unexpected jolt to the imagination. And have you ever seen that? We talked about that in the podcast before. It was um, pareidolic apophenia. Mm. Lots of syllables there. But that's the thing where, like, let's say you look at a tree. And you're like, hey, look, it's a face. Or you look at a cloud. And you're like, hey, look, it's a bunny rabbit. Right? That same kind of a thing. And, and like, if you've ever drawn before, I know that you've done this. Like, let's say you don't even know for sure what you're drawing. You just put some lines down. And you're like, ooh, 
that looks good. You know, and you're like, I didn't think about the hand going in that way. That, okay, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to go with that. Right. I never had a term for that. I was like, I don't know, just drawing, (laughs) putting lines down. I mean, so grist is useful. And it also applies to like the game dev, you know, like there might be something where it's like, okay, Jeff, you've got this kind of hard problem. You want to write some code to solve, right? You might not even know for sure how you're going to start. You're like, I'm just, I'm literally just creating some variables and just putting down some if blocks. Like, I don't know for sure where this is going. I might rewrite all of this in 15 minutes, right? Oh man, that's pretty much exactly how I write code. (laughs) Right? I would call that, like that approach to me or that, your approach to that, grist, that's useful because then it's like, you might eventually come up with a more concise term for it and you might be able to describe what it is exactly that you're doing in better terms later. But for now, it's like it all gets kind of glommed into this grist, which is abstract, gobbledygook, which aids you, and it can end right there. For for art, it's aids you in finding the right forms, but for development, it could be aids you in getting the feature done, aids you in yeah. fixing this bug, you know? It's just like anything that you do that you have a hard time defining. Yeah, I think it's, you know, just kind of the process of iteration, you know, especially with code. Uh, yeah. You just kind of start simply and throw some variables and some functions down, and then you might delete them and refactor them, but it gives you a jumping off point. Like it gives you something to start working on. And I think that's one of the reasons that, uh, and we'll go too much into this topic, but one of the reasons I don't particularly like to do the unit testing approach or at least test driven development uh, is that that's just kind of counter to the way that I, I like to work. Um, and the way I like to work is by kind of just roughing things out and then making several passes, refactoring, 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 which, you know, does take a decent amount of time, but, you know, that's just kind of what works for me. Yeah. And there's so many parallels you can draw between, yeah. you know, drawing and, and development. Well, I like so, that a lot of these uh, art tips you have are, uh, there are specific to art in, in some sense, but they also kind of have like a lot of global uh, implication. Like, for sure. You know, when you're talking about drawing every day, like write code every day, uh, yeah. find your starting point, learn how to learn that makes sense in almost any discipline. Primitives. Uh, surround yourself with, you know, I think one of the reasons I like Twitter as a social network is because that's kind of what I think is the best use case for Twitter is just following people who have interesting things to say, uh, who bubble up interesting stuff to you. Yeah. Um, who, you know, you can glean a little bit of wisdom from. Right. Like, uh, you know, use this package for unity or, you know, draw things this way, or here's a different piece of software or here's a different technique. And here's how, I implemented this procedural dungeon generator and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I I love that stuff. And I found that for artists, Twitter is especially great because, you know, you might look at your stream and you see a bunch of text and there's, you know, someone talking about something interesting or somebody posting a link or somebody complaining about traffic or like whatever. You see a picture, you know, speaks a thousand words. It might be really pretty to look at. You don't need any words to go along with it sometimes. You know, you just like, hey, I just tweeted this picture. And you're like, oh, it makes me happy just looking at it, you know? Yeah. I, uh... I try to ruthlessly unfollow people who post like what I would consider to be like personal stuff that I don't care about. And, you know, not to say that they shouldn't post it, but I think that Twitter <laughs> is a social network that works best if you keep the signal to noise low. Yeah. My big thing is I don't just keep it positive people, you know, like whenever someone's really cranky and they're complaining, like just, just whatever they're saying, you know, complaining about traffic, like I was saying, or like, you know, my stomach hurts today or just blah, blah, blah. Like, whatever I mean, you can vent right like i'm not telling you you shouldn't do it but like when i notice a trend you know that's a quick oh, unfollow yeah. for me if i if i see like three bitches from you in a row like complain 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 i'm like nope 
we're done here. I don't have time for it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I need as much positivity in my life as I can possibly muster. That's one of yeah. my goals. I agree. I agree. Yeah. And then because the problem with negativity is that I find that uh, it kind of start like you start to like dwell on certain things. Yeah. Uh, like especially like, you know, whatever the like outrage of the day happens to be on Twitter. Yeah. And you start thinking about like, well, this is wrong or that's wrong or Dude, blah, yes, blah, it's, blah. it spends more time in your brain. Right? Because it enters your brain. Let's say something annoying, like a, a dog, you know, pees on your foot. And you're like, that person with the dog is so rude. Didn't even see that. And like, enters your mind. And one person might be like, in one ear, out the other. I don't care. I'm not going to let it ruin my day. I went home, changed my pants, and I'm working now. And I'm happy. Somebody else might be like, oh, man. Okay. Now I'm going to, I can't wait to get home. I'm going to complain about this on Twitter. I'm going to, pra- okay. Let me think about the perfect tweet. Let me craft it in my head. Let me keep my brain cycling over this negativity. Right, and then you tweet it, and like six hours later, somebody might be like, "Hey, man, that sucks. You should go, you know, punch that person in the face." And you're like, "Yeah." It just like it sustains the negativity. It keeps it alive, you know. Yeah. Let it uh, go. Be positive. There's this really interesting book. I may have mentioned it before, but I, I don't remember. It's I called. I guarantee the, you did. <laughs> I think it's called "The Medium Is the Message." Oh, I think so. I'll put that in the link, though. Uh, anyways, and so one of the things that kind of stuck out to me was there's a section in the book where he's talking about, um the news of the day and how like all these events that happen all over the world, people think they're relevant to their lives, but they actually aren't, you know, like how much time do you, you spend or maybe the Royal you, uh, like just reading news or watching news that has zero impact on your life and thinking about it and spending brain cycles on it and like all this stuff. And it's like, okay, something that happened in New York is pretty irrelevant to my life. I mean, yeah, You know, there's a spectrum, obviously. Like, if there's, like, a Supreme Court ruling that affects your day-to-day life, then maybe that's important. But right. by and large, a lot of the stuff you see on the news, like, Doesn't you could too. not know it, and it wouldn't affect your life whatsoever. Yeah, I saw a saying recently. It was, um, think globally, act locally. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, I don't know. That's hard to apply to everyday life, right? I saw something else, too. It was, like, I was walking around. I think it was downtown LA, and it was something like, you know, here's a homeless person passed out newspapers all over him and then there's a you know like a light poster or something with a poster stapled to it and it's like save elephants in kenya or something <laughs> right. and i'm like I, what about this <laughs> what about this poor person living on the streets you know like that's more immediate that's more you know at least in my tiny little area that i could possibly affect in the world you know like i, I would love it if the elephants in kenya were happy and healthy and stuff but like there are local problems as well right yeah, it's true. And uh and I think a a better analogy might be like, you know, the you know, like starving kids in Africa or wherever and you know right. you see those commercials with like whoever that lady was, Sally Struthers. <laughs> Anyways. Oh, yeah. Yep. Uh but yeah, there's like starving kids in America too. And so I mean not that any of them are more or less deserving than each other, but it's interesting the way that like your perception uh of things kind of affects what you value, you know. It's, right. it's really easy to have your heartstrings pulled by like a wide-eyed starving kid uh, versus like, you know, maybe a grizzled war veteran that's living on the streets. Well, we got to change the subject now because everyone's going to be like, you know, they're right. I'm going to take that 25 bucks I was going to donate to their <laughs> Kickstarter. And I'm going to give it to hungry kids in another country. And we're like, okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> we're glad. Yes. We're very glad. Please, please donate to starving children. <laughs> Anyways. Oh, we're so selfish. Yes. We're uh, way off topic there. But anyways, it's just, you know, kind of... We're off in the stuff. weeds here. Hey, you know what? That's uh, that's okay. It's been a while, I feel like, on Lost Cast. Like, today was topics. We went through our topics, and, you know, it was all related to either making games or making your games prettier or better or whatnot. 
Uh, one thing I did want to mention, actually, is that I found this pretty interesting podcast that started up recently. Um, there's a guy named uh, Chris Delion who ran a site slash Twitter account called Hobby Game Dev. Yep. Uh, which has recently kind of rebranded to be called Game Devs Like You. And uh, he has a podcast also called Game Devs Like You, uh, where he talks about, uh, you know, or talks to game developers. Um, and uh, and it's pretty interesting. I listened to a couple episodes. So if you're looking for another game development podcast, um, you know, to fill the time when you're not listening to Lost Cast, obviously, uh, you <laughs> should check again, it out. Don't leave us. <laughs> Save your time and money for us, but, uh, you know, give it to others as well. <laughs> Well, we can only provide one hour a week of entertainment it's to people. True. And it's so, you know, some people, they commute an hour a day. And they yeah. would listen to seven episodes of Lost Cast a week if they could, perhaps. Yeah, some people, we cannot compete with the uh, endless void of time that they have for which to fill with, with audio. Right. Um, and while we're plugging that, uh, VG Empire is another good one, run by yeah. my friend Brett. It's all about video game music, which if you like the composer talks and that kind of thing, you'll probably love VG Empire. Yeah. Um, so yeah, good stuff there. Um, I think that's about all we have for this week, though. So Next week, uh, we're going to have a Unity tip from Jeff, number two. You're going to have uh, number four from me. I've already got it planned out and ready to go. Locked and loaded. That's right. Wow. You were on the ball. I have to figure out what my tip for next week will be. You know, you've been in a similar boat because you've been uni- uh, learning Unity pretty steadily for, you know, and last end months or so. So it should be pretty new-ish in your mind. Yeah, I don't know. But you weren't really starting... I mean, with Unity, you were starting from the ground level, but you're also a very experienced engineer. You know, whereas, like, my art side, I'm, like, really inexperienced, so I'm kind of learning everything or trying to. It might transition to Jeff's game development tips. That's okay. Or, like, game programming tips, rather. Yeah, Game development is, like, a big umbrella. Yeah, we're not... Like, I'm not going to have, you know... Hopefully, we'll keep going, and there'll be, like, hundreds of podcasts someday, but I'm not going to have hundreds of art tips. What I'm planning on doing is I get to the end... And then this is something I want to do is like, you go back through, do it again. Hmm. But, uh, you know, maybe make it different. It's almost like uh, a roguelike, you know, or like uh, Ghosts and Goblins, you beat it and it's like, do it again, but harder. <laughs> That's right. Now you've got to have harder <laughs> art tips. Hard mode. Yeah. New game plus. That's right. <laughs> Anyways, uh, thank you for listening, and don't forget to take our survey, which will be in the show notes. Yes. And uh, come say hi on our forums at forum.lostdecadegames.com. We're going to play you out with Funk Bump. This is a remix by Joshua Morse of a Joshua Morse song, totally meta. Hope you enjoyed it. This is the last song that I'm going to play from Waveform Collection, so you should totally go buy that album and support our composer, Joshua Morse. And uh, pretty soon here, maybe not next week, but pretty soon, you're going to start hearing some of Wizard's Lizard 2 songs in the podcast. Pretty exciting. Oh, I'm excited. Yeah. I've already heard some of them, so I'm cheating. You! You've cheated. That's right. <laughs> Ship it.
but it won't take long. Okay.